Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Thank you all for subscribing on iTunes and following me on social at Primalosophy. If you're a new fire recruit or firefighter, just shoot me a message at Primalosophy.com and I'll teach you everything you need to know for career-long well-being. My guest on the podcast today is physicist and writer Alan Lightman. You know him from his incredible book, Einstein's Dreams, and my personal favorite, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. Our conversation is wide-ranging from transcendent experiences and secularism to our longing for permanence and immortality. Alan's been one of my favorite science writers for some time now, so I'm really excited to share this episode with you all. And if you like the podcast, do me a favor, hit subscribe, and please share. Enjoy. Alan Lightman, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Thank you, Nick. So forgive my ignorance today. I'm just a normal guy who's curious about science and the cosmos. I think of you as a scientist who is open to the spiritual world or the sublime. Am I close? Yes. So the science, the scientist, or I guess the difference between the scientist and an artist, I've heard you say before, is the scientist tries to name things, whereas the artist avoids naming things. Is this because the artist or the novelist like yourself, work their work is often spiritual? The artist wants the, the, the viewer, the reader, the listener to participate in the creative experience. The, the, the most powerful uh, artistic communication is when the, the consumer of the art also is a participant in the creative process. That is, uses their own imagination and life experiences uh, to receive the artistic work. And if you name something, uh, you are, if you define something too precisely, which uh, I take metaphorically uh, to name something, then you are blocking the creative path of the consumer. I'm, I'm using the word consumer. I know it's a very crude word, but I just mean the listener, the reader, uh, the, the viewer there. So I think that's the principal reason for the, the artist wants to avoid naming things. You want to, to have a, a, a welcoming path for the consumer to use their own creative imagination to define, uh, and visualize whatever is the artistic work i like that so we, like today we're having a podcast the listeners are able to visualize and join us on this journey but it may not be measurable it may not be measurable and and fortunately they're not able to see me because i i don't have my hair combed i haven't shaven today and i'm, I'm pretty much of a mess it's a privilege just to be able to hear you speak and just to kind of hear your life story. So speaking about things that can't be measured, t talk to me about your childhood growing up in Memphis. I mean, how did you first develop this love for the cosmos and science? All of the scientists that I've known, the professional scientists, all were interested in science and childhood. So we all have similar stories. Um, I was curious about what was behind the curtain, curious about the way things work, why things were the way they were. Uh, I built uh, rockets uh, with using my own homemade fuel. I built remote control devices that would turn the lights on in any room of the house from any other room. I had a, a little laboratory uh, in a large closet connected to my bedroom uh, and did experiments. And uh, I was just fascinated with, with gadgets, uh, fascinated with, with understanding how things work. I remember that, that I had uh, read in a popular science magazine or some similar magazine that the period of a pendulum, and that's the length of time it takes a, a pendulum to, to make a complete swing, is proportional to the square root of the length of the string or the length of the pendulum. So that means if you, every time you quadruple the length of the pendulum, you double 
the time it takes it to make a complete swing. And I thought this was was a, a mysterious and magical law. And so I got out a, a, a ruler and a stopwatch, and I made a number of pendulums myself by attaching a fishing weight to the end of a string. And I uh, calculated the, the period of the pendulum uh, associated with each length of the pendulum, and I found that this law that, that I've read about in, in popular science was really true. And uh, it fascinated to me that there was this, this logic in the world, that, that the world operated, uh, was quantitative, and that there was a logic to why things were as they were. This sort of childlike curiosity seems to have stuck with you. I mean, since you became a fan of science early on or a student of science, it seems like it has never stopped. Now, being a physicist, does this world become more and more beautiful or colder the more you understand it? Well, that's a wonderful question, and it reminds me of, a, of one of the Aesop's fables uh, called The Astronomer, in which uh, a person listens to a lecture on astronomy and uh, hears all about how the solar system works and the stars and, and so on, and then goes outside and just takes a look at the sky, at the, at the dark sky, and is mesmerized by what the sky actually looks like at night. Um, the, 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 the beauty of nature has not diminished for me knowing how many of the things in nature work. Um, it's, it's only increased because uh, in addition to the, the, the beauty of nature that's, that's, that's apparent to our senses, there's also a beauty in the mathematics that describes nature. And so there's there's an underlying layer of beauty as well as the visual beauty. And of course, you need a little bit of training in mathematics and, and, and science to to go to that deeper level. Uh, but they're just deeper and deeper levels, uh, each beautiful. Yeah, it's like when you mention someone goes outside and they stare at the sky or the vastness of the open sky or they go stand on a beach. They, you know, you have that overwhelming feeling of being small or feeling small, but it's also, it makes you feel obsolete. Well, it makes you feel small, but it also makes you feel connected. Um, or at least I have felt connected to nature when I've gone outside and on a dark night and looked at the, at the stars. And that feeling of connection is part of what I mean uh, by this, the transcendent experience um, or the, the spiritual experience, the, the feeling of connection to something larger than yourself. That feeling of a tran transcendent experience, a lot of people experience that in different ways. Um, and the experience is real. Whether or not it's tangible or measurable, it's still real to us. Why, why do we yeah. have an issue with that? Well, I don't have any issue with that at all. Um, the... the uh, you, you can be an atheist and still uh, ex have the transcendent experience, have a transcendent experience where you feel connected to something larger than yourself. Um, the, the, the transcendent experience, uh, this overwhelming feel of, of things larger than yourself and this feeling of connection, it may or may not involve belief in an intelligent being who created the universe. Uh, that most people call God. Um, I think that the the trouble that people have in talking about spiritual experiences is that uh, those people who are atheists, and I respect both atheists and believers, but those people who are atheists uh, do not want their experiences to require belief in God. Um, and I use the word God to mean some 
all-powerful, intelligent being that created the universe. Um, so I think that that's the only difficulty that we have in talking about spiritual or transcendent experiences if we require a belief in God in order to validate those experiences. And, and that would offend uh, the atheists. Right. And if we're not seeking that validation, then it really doesn't need any further discussion. If you experienced it, then that is yours to keep. Right. Exactly. Another quote from you, if a person holds no ambitions in this world, he suffers unknowingly. If a person holds ambitions, he suffers knowingly, but very slowly. This one holds so true to me, but also feels a bit nihilistic. Can you tell me more? Well, that's a quote that came from my book, Einstein's Dreams, which, which I wrote 25 years ago. Um, if, you, if you have no ambitions, then you're not striving for anything. And if you're not striving for anything, you, you do not suffer all of the, the anxieties that come with, with attaching your ego to things and being disappointed that you're not achieving your goals. Um, if you do have ambition and you do have certain goals that you want to achieve, and in particular, if you attach your, your ego and your self-worth to achieving those goals, then you are certainly going to be disappointed at some point because none of us can achieve all of the goals that we have for ourselves. And that's really a Buddhist idea that, uh, that, that the suffering uh, in the world comes from attaching your ego to things and, and too much striving. So that's sort of what I meant by that those couple of lines. Um, it wasn't a nihilistic view of the, of the world. Uh, I think that people can be perfectly happy without any ambition at all. I mean, we all have a minimum set of ambitions, whether we're conscious or not. We, we, for self-preservation, we, we, we need a certain amount of physical comfort and food in our stomachs. Um, but, uh, I think that we don't have to be first in our class in school or uh, a very, very good tennis player or any of the other things that some people strive for in order to lead a happy life. I think the way that I took that was uh, the ambition or what you're striving for was a sort of truth as a scientist or answers. And the closer you get to those answers, maybe the more meaningless things can seem to feel well I didn't mean that um, there is a a line in uh, Steve Weinberg's book and Steve Weinberg uh, is a Nobel Prize winning physicist who is also a very good writer and has, has written a lot of popular books and in one of his books called the first three minutes near the end of the book he has a line which says that the more that we understand about the universe, the more pointless it seems. And uh, that's a particular point of view. Uh, there are, are many scientists who do not share that point of view. Of course, uh, in, in my view, whether something has meaning or has a point is a very personal judgment and personal assessment. Um, I don't think that there's any cosmic meaning or cosmic point. Uh, I think that each of us has to find our own meaning and, and our own point and, and our own set of values and principles uh, that guide us in, in, in knowing what makes life worthwhile. That's a very personal uh set of considerations and reflections and what has meaning to you may not have meaning to me yeah it's going to be different for everyone and and it's like the point of the game is playing the game the point of life is living well you just express your personal view there <laughs> exactly yeah i mean i'm focused on the process and, and yes just... well, there are many people who have shared that point of view that that the journey is where the meaning is not getting to the destination well, I think that comes down to, you know, all of us, when we meditate on impermanence or our own mortality, I think the only way to prepare for that is 
by being completely immersed in the present until the present is no longer. I agree with you on that. Now, we are mostly restlessness and empty space. Since we and everything else are made of atoms, we are mostly empty space. Do you find this vast emptiness unsettling? No. Uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of philosophically amusing <laughs> that we're mostly empty space. Uh, but I think that, that even though uh, that, that atoms are mostly empty space, that's, that atoms still do a pretty good job of creating uh, intelligence, consciousness, self-awareness, and so on. So um, it's, it's, it's sort of a curiosity that we're mostly empty space, but it's not unsettling to me. Now, these, like you said, these atoms create consciousness. This is a gift because we can be aware. But at the same time, could, can it be sort of a curse because it makes us have to see the reality of impermanence? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. You know, you can ask whether animals of, of lower intelligence are aware of their mortality, whether they experience sadness, heartache, and so on. I think that, that as you go through the animal kingdom, and, I, and we're, we're animals ourselves, of course, um, as you go through the animal kingdom and come to animals with, with larger and larger brains and uh, more and more neurons and and what we would consider to be higher and higher intelligence, I think that there are a whole lot of, of, of new emotional states that arise. And I think happiness is one of them. Sadness is also another. And I think that, that, that you can't have happiness without sadness, that, that they come together like, like yin and yang. And, um, when you when you when you've had a pebble in your shoe and it's been hurting you for a month every time you walk and you take the pebble out of the shoe it feels so good yeah you have to have something to compare it to you have to have something to compare it to it feels good because you were in pain earlier and i think that that a lot of things come in pairs the yin yang uh metaphor and uh the that happiness and sadness are like that. So I think that there, there are a whole uh, constellation of human emotions that, that arise uh, at the higher levels of intelligence. So I think that, that sadness and aware, awareness of our mortality are um, inevitable consequences of higher intelligence. Wow. Not that I'm some expert on neuroscience, but I feel like it makes us ask a lot of questions that maybe don't need answering because we're so comfortable and we have the allotted time to be able to do so. Whereas in the animal kingdom, even if they do have this same consciousness, they're too busy trying to get their needs met to think about these big concepts. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that lower animals think about these big concepts. Um, I, I, I would be very surprised to, to know that amoebas worried about their mortality or the impermanence of existence. Um, uh, it, it's a continuum in the animal kingdom. And uh, I do think that, that, that there are animals that are very smart, um, like crows, that do have time on their hands where they're not worrying about eating or mating. And you can see crows playing games with each other uh, uh, there are actually some YouTube videos of crows having fun and playing a game with a swinging uh, branch. And so I think that, that it, uh, and I, I know that dolphins also play games, uh, which means that they have time on their hands and, and they have a higher level of intelligence. They're doing something to amuse themselves. So... Um, I, I, I don't I don't think anybody knows what consciousness is or exactly where you draw the line of what's conscious and what's not. But I would imagine that 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 crows and dolphins and, and chimpanzees have uh, thought processes that are similar to our 
self-consciousness and self-awareness. Um, we know that dolphins can recognize themselves in a mirror, for example, and that uh, is, is interpreted to be self-awareness. So I think that this is a continuum in the animal kingdom. And I really appreciate that because you see that also in indigenous tribes, whereas once their needs are met, you know, you've survived, you're reproducing, and, you know, you've eaten, then they just play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We can learn a lot from that. Now, science doesn't reveal the meaning of our existence, but it does draw back some of the veils. Some of these veils being what? Enormous uh, breakthrough in science occurred in the 1950s uh, when... Uh, or early 60s, when Rosalind Franklin and, and Watson and Crick discovered the genetic code and the realization that that all of our characteristics, including our personality, are the result of of the particular sequence of certain molecules. Uh, that's pretty amazing um, uh, in terms of how we understand ourselves. Uh, I also think that, of course, uh, Darwin, uh, Darwin's uh, theory of, of, of natural selection and evolution is also a, a watershed event and, and our understanding of ourselves. Again, another peeling back of, of the layers by science. I think the the understanding uh, of Copernicus that the the Earth is not the center of the solar system. Another peeling back of of layers, which which tells us something enormous about our place in the cosmos. So um, these are all examples of, of what you're talking about. I mean, since the Big Bang on, you know, this whole life, maybe in this accidental universe, um, that right there is the meaning of the cosmos or its goal is you know it's unlimited or the potential of its energy until there is no more energy well i wouldn't consider that a goal i mean i would consider that this that happens unavoidably you know if you if you uh blow a soap bottle bubble you'll notice that it's round and you can't I wouldn't say that roundness is a goal of the soap bubble. I would say that it's round because that minimizes the surface tension. Uh, it's 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 uh, the one shape in which all of the forces are balanced, and it will keep changing shape until it reaches the round shape. So I don't call that a goal. I, I call it an inevitable result of the laws of nature, an inevitable result of the laws of nature. Yeah, and I don't call that a goal. A goal, uh, to me, implies some kind of consciousness somewhere. An attachment to, to the goal. Generally, there's an attachment to the goal. Yeah, because if there's a consciousness and there's a mind, and it's, it's very hard to have goals without having an, an attachment, although that's what the Buddhists would like us to do. If, if we can have... Uh, goals without attaching to them, that uh, brings us closer to nirvana. Now, when you get in this state of non-attachment or non-thought, isn't that just sort of pre-consciousness? Because with consciousness, we're not really able to achieve that. I guess we could strive for that sage-like or that Buddhist-like um, you know, state of mind, but for most of, us, most of us, it's unachievable. For most of us, it's unachievable. But um, uh, I, I do know uh, a lot of people who pra practice meditation and who are either card-carrying Buddhists or informal Buddhists, and I think that, that some of them have uh, achieved the ability to be conscious but not to be uh, attaching their ego so much. I, I think it's impossible to do that all of the time. I think being human makes us unavoidably attach our ego to some things, but there are people who are much better than others at, at unattaching or detaching their ego from their, their goals. Yeah. Now switching gears here, I want, I wanted to talk to you about your family's annual trip to Maine and what made it worth writing a book about. 
Well, my, my wife is a painter. And uh, many years ago, maybe 35 years ago, um, she and I uh, began talking about a summer retreat, a, a place that we could go in the summertime where she could paint and I could write. I mean, I still had a day job as an astrophysicist, but I had a lot of flexibility in the summer. So uh, we eventually found this property on an island in Maine. Uh, it was very undeveloped at that time. Uh, there were other, there was, there was, it was an island that had six lots on it, and there was one, a couple of that were, that were, un, that were available for purchase. And so we, we bought one of these lots um, around uh, 1988, about 30 years ago. And uh, we started going there in the summer. We, we built a house. We drilled a, a water well. Um, and uh, we spend about three months there every summer. Uh, our children uh, have, have grown up there spending their summers on the island. We now have grandchildren who have made trips to the island in the summertime. And uh, it has become sort of our our place of quiet and serenity and it's a place where we disconnect from the from the the rush of the rest of the world the, and uh it's also our spiritual center now this book is brilliant in searching for stars on an island in maine and in the book you ask are we falling and falling without end are there unlimited infinities on all sides of us both bigger and smaller can you answer your own question here I can't, I cannot answer the question. Um, but I do know that on the small side, where you're going to smaller and smaller sizes, you know, the atom we once thought was the smallest thing there was. And then, then around 1900, we found the atom had smaller things within it. And then in the 1960s, we're able to sp even split those smaller things into quarks. Um, if we continue to smaller and smaller sizes, we reach a point called the Planck size where gravity and relativity and quantum physics all come together. And at that size, which is about um, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, which is roughly a billion, trillion, tri trillion times smaller than an atom. Let's see, an atom is, is 10 to the minus 8. Uh, the, I'm talking about 10 to the minus 33, so that's 25. It's about a trillion, tri trillion times smaller than an atom. Okay. At this size, at this size, space and time lose their meaning uh, because the the fluctuations uh space is constantly fluctuating uh changing shape changing size time is 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 jumping forwards and backwards um and it no longer makes sense to speak about space and time and um the reason why space and time look smooth to us on larger scales is the same reason why uh a beach looks smooth when you're looking at it from uh, 100 feet, but when you look at it from one inch, you see the granularity of the individual grains of sand. Um, so at the Planck size, our vocabulary, uh, and in particular the words space and time, don't have meaning anymore. So that seems to be a limit uh, on the smaller size on going the infinity of the small seems to reach this this limit at the Planck size of one trillionth of one trillionth of the size of an atom where our vocabulary is no longer applicable uh, going in the other direction the infinity of the large uh, there is no such limit um, uh, according to modern cosmologists it's very likely that space continues 
on and on and on and on without any limit. Um, and not only that, but, but according to modern cosmologists, we think there may be other entire universes that are uh, disconnected from our universe and that, that also may be infinite. So there's no limit on the infinity of the large, but I think there is a, a limit on the infinity of the small when you, when you reach the Planck size. Okay, so my brain is broken, but I'll continue to try to try to wrap my head around this. And I know you said that there could be, I think what you're referring to is multiple universes, which in the accidental universe, you argue for this possibility of the multiverse. But I've also heard you say that this is unprovable. So could you help unbend my mind? Let's, let's define what we mean by a universe. Uh, a universe is a region of space and time that is self-contained if you go into the infinite future everything that it will come into contact with going to the infinite future is part of the universe now we believe that there are regions of space and time that 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 we will never come into contact with even if we go infinitely far into the future and we consider those to be other universes so, so if we were to give this universe an address, what would make it, how would we discover that it isn't ubiquitous? Well, we, there's no way we could give it an address. It's a great way of putting it because we, we don't really know how, we, we think that, that, that space extends infinitely. And we also know that there's no center of, 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 of the universe or any other universes. We, there's no center. So it would be, in order to give it an, 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 an the, the, the whole concept of an address is a place that you can go to. We can certainly give our solar system a, a, an address and we can give our galaxy an address. But in order to give the universe an address, it means that we would have to be able to go to our universe from outside the universe. And that's impossible by virtue of the definition of a universe. And is this the sort of sort of thing that you experienced when you were lying there on your boat looking up at these stars? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't think about all of this this then. Um, the thing is, uh, when, when you're when you're undergoing a transcendent experience, uh, the way that I define it, which, which again, to say what that means, that you feel um, you lose all sense of your ego, you lose sense, all sense of, of time, you lose sense of your body, and you just feel, feel this overwhelming connection to things. Um, you're not analyzing when you have a transcendent experience, just like you're not analyzing when you have a meditative experience or when you're meditating. You're not analyzing. You're not thinking about the items on your to-do list. You're not trying to make decide whether this makes any sense logically. You're just experiencing. I'm curious, what, what's the difference between dark matter and dark energy? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, dark matter is material that we, uh, we, we don't know what it is, but we've, but we've measured it. Um, um, and we know that it, that it's, it, that every galaxy has dark matter in it and it, it has mass, it has gravity and it pulls things together like, like normal gravity. Um, uh, we, we can see evidence for it, for the gravitational pull of dark matter when we look at other galaxies and we can see how fast the stars are rotating around the center of the galaxy we know that there's some invisible matter in addition to the light emitting matter that is that is pulling those stars around and so we we can we can we have evidence of it we 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 can measure it dark energy we've also measured but it is a very peculiar kind of gravity 
it's a it's a gravity that has a repulsive force instead of an attractive force um, all the the normal kinds of, of matter and energy have have attractive gravitational forces but dark energy is a peculiar kind of material uh, it's, 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 I shouldn't say material, it's, it's pure energy that has a repulsive force. It, it actually causes the, the, the galaxies to move away from each other at accelerating speed instead of decelerating speed. And we have measured dark energy by seeing how fast the universe was expanding in the past. And it is expanding in the present more rapidly than it was expanding in the past, which means that, that the expansion is accelerating. And that's the evidence for, for dark energy. So dark matter has an attractive gravitational force. Dark energy has a repulsive gravitational force. Wow. So dark matter is measurable, but we can't see it. Therefore, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. And dark energy. So is it possible that pre-Big Bang was just dark energy with potential? Um, no, I don't think that's possible. Uh, well, I suppose what, 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 what is needed uh, pre-Big Bang is you have to have a, a kind of energy which can decay into normal energy and matter. And uh, I think that the dark energy can do that. Uh, so it is possible. No, it's not possible. <laughs> okay. uh, it's not possible. And, and the reason why I know it's not possible is because we know that all of the matter fields that we're familiar with, like the electromagnetic field, that they came from uh, normal kinds of energy. And those normal kinds of energy had to be present uh, pre-Big Bang. Uh, so I, I don't think there could have been only uh, this repulsive kind of energy uh, prior to the Big Bang. Um, prior to the Big Bang, we, we think that, 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 uh, that there was con some kind of space and time with... with uh, lots of other universes, lots of universes coming into existence uh, via quantum jitter. Uh, everything is shaking a little bit due to quantum mechanics. Um, and we think that, 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 that probably our universe was one of many universes that came into existence with the right initial conditions to begin expanding and to, to last long enough to produce stars uh, which then uh, produce atoms that produce life. Uh, we think that there are other universes which came into existence and then quickly collapsed that didn't have the right initial conditions, the right velocity of expansion and so on to, to, to form stars. So um, the multiverse picture envisions lots and lots and lots of universes that are possible lots of universes that come into existence with, with different conditions. Some of those universes have the conditions that are right to form galaxies and planets and stars and life. Some of them do not. So that's the first that I've heard of quantum jitter, and I don't quite understand quantum gravity either. But like you said, it caused everything to shake or sort of shake everything what what is everything and is that what we have to are eventually going to return to well we think that our universe will keep expanding forever so we're not going to return to the Planck size um to, to a very very small size but by quantum jitter i mean that that one of the fundamentals of quantum physics is, is something called the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And it says uh, that you can't know where something is and how fast it's moving simultaneously to infinite accuracy. Um, so if you, if you know that a particle is in a certain small region of space, 
then uh, unavoidably it, it also has a certain motion, uh, a certain uh, indiscriminate random motion. And that random motion is what I call quantum quantum jitter, or uh, some people call it the quantum foam. Uh, you, you can call it anything you want, but the point is, is that that in the this kind of pre Big Bang, pre our universe state of the world, that everything with matter and energy were jittering, and uh, everything was was sort of fluctuating, like like a, a boiling water in a kettle. Okay. And and out of some of those fluctuations, new universes came about. Wow, that's fascinating. So what is the difference between when you say our universe is going to continue to expand forever and, and I guess, impermanence or eternity? When I use the word impermanence, I'm, I'm not referring to the universe as a whole. I'm referring to all structures within the universe. Okay. Uh, the universe as a whole, uh, according to, to modern cosmologists, will, will last forever and will keep expanding forever. But but any structure within the universe, uh, like people, planets, stars, will eventually uh, disintegrate, uh, will eventually pass away, will we'll become whatever. Nothing. Well, we'll, well there, there's, there'll be something there, but but all arrangements will become unarranged. I mean, that's what happens to to the human brain when we die is that the special uh, arrangement of, of, of neurons that make consciousness uh, become disarranged and and we lose consciousness, we lose what we would call self and then eventually the body decomposes and the atoms of the body uh, spread through the, the water and the soil and the air the atoms don't disappear. They, they they hang around, but they are no longer in the, the special uh, arrangement that makes a living body. Right. So that's what I mean by impermanence. Okay. Thank you for the that clarity there. So when, when we're speaking of impermanence, you write, the choice each of us has to make in contemplating change or eternity is either to come to terms with it and move on, which is hard for us to do, or to believe in some realm of immortality that exists outside nature. And then you follow up by saying something that I think resonates with most of us, which is, I cannot accept that fate even though I believe it to be true. I cannot force my mind to go to that dark place. So why do we long for permanence in an impermanent universe? Well, the reason why we long for permanence is, is of course, it's, it's psychological. And I'm not a professional psychologist. Um, but I think it's, it's part of our search for meaning. Uh, and our search for meaning and the belief in meaning and the concept of meaning, I think, is, is one of the byproducts of having a, a very intelligent brain. That I don't think the search for meaning uh, necessarily had survival benefit in our millions of years of evolution, but I think that once you, you, you once intelligence, a, a smart brain, develops as a survival mechanism that there are certain byproducts that come with that 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 that, that and and I think the search for meaning is one of them um, I think that our desire for something to have permanence is associated with the belief that the things that last a long time have more meaning than things that are here today and gone tomorrow. And um, I think that that the that our own mortality and awareness of, of our own mortality is really the basis for a lot of, of religious and theological belief. I think it's the basis for, for the belief in God, the basis for the belief in the immortal soul and, and many other things that, that it's it's a way of, of dealing with this this unpleasant fact that we 
are mortal and we are passing away. That's that's very very well put. So talk to me about what physicists call the second law of thermodynamics. That is a statement that the second law of thermodynamics is really a statement of probabilities. It says that if you a, a, a very ordered state like a deck of cards where, where all the cards are arranged by suit and uh, by number, that's a highly ordered state. And highly ordered states are improbable. Um, if you if you drop the deck of cards on the floor, most likely when you pick them up, they're they're going to be out of order. Um, the probabilities are enormously in favor of the cards getting shuffled up in a random way. That doesn't mean that it would be impossible that if you drop the cards and pick them up, they would they would be out of order. If you drop the cards and pick them up billions of times a few of those times they would be exactly in order. Mm -hmm. But most of the time they would be randomly shuffled up. So that's a statement of probabilities and that's what the second law of thermodynamics is about. That that any system like a duff of cards or a planetary system or a human body um, that is in a state of high order uh, that the probabilities are in favor of it over time becoming less ordered, more disordered. And uh, that is the statement of the second law of thermodynamics. And this is a law, and all matter is slave to this law. Yeah, and as I said, uh, it's, it's a statement of probabilities. Um, it's not quite the same, it doesn't have quite the same footing as the, the law of conservation of energy, which says that all the time, every time, the total amount of energy in a, in a closed box is going to be the same every time you examine the box, no matter what changes happen in the box, the total amount of energy in the box is going to be the same. That law is, is, is invi- inviolable, whoever the, the word is, um, cannot be violated. It's true all the time. The second law of thermodynamics is not a law in the same sense as the first law of thermodynamics, but it's the statement of probabilities. And if you have something that is uh, probable at the 99.999999% level, then you can say most likely that's what's going to happen. If I take a, a, a deck of cards and I drop it on the floor and pick it up, the probability that all the cards will be arranged according to suit and number is enormously small. It would be, uh, I, w- I could calculate it now, but I won't take the time to do that. I mean, it would be, you know, it would be in, in fantastically small. So uh, things that are uh, things that that, that 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 are true almost all the time, uh, whether we call them laws or not, is is a matter of semantics. But I just wanted to make make it clear that the second law of thermodynamics is really a statement of probabilities. With that being said, what does this tell us about things that can break this law, or uh, if there is an immortal substance? Well, if there is a mortal substance, an, an immortal substance, then it would have to lie outside of the physical universe, because we so, we see no evidence that there's an that there is an immortal substance inside the inside the physical universe. We we have seen no evidence of that. So, most likely, it would have to lie outside the physical universe, and then that would require a belief that there is another realm of existence or something or other that's not within the physical universe. And even when we talk about the multiverse, all these other zillions of universes that might exist, they're all physical universes. Right. So the, sec- the second law of thermodynamics and all the other laws would apply in all of them. Right. So if there is this substance, it has to be something unlike anything else. It has to be something unlike anything else. That, that's right. So it could possibly be something spiritual. It could be something spiritual. Um, the transcendent experience that I 
had uh, looking up at the stars one night in Maine. Um, I do not, although I, I call it a spiritual experience, I do not consider it to be a supernatural experience. That is, I think that it was uh, a result of, of physical processes in my physical neurons. Right. It's created in the mind. The mind is made of matter. It, exactly. Um, so an immortal substance would have to be one level beyond that. Oh, man. <laughs> Moving on here. In Einstein's dreams, you explore many possible worlds. In one, time is circular so that people are fated to repeat their lives over and over. In another, there's a place where time stands still. And in another, time is a nightingale, sometimes trapped by a bell jar. If it were up to you, which would you prefer? Well, I would prefer a world in which we were appreciative of the moment. And um, I can't remember whether I have any worlds that are quite like that. I think, in, in a way, all of the dream worlds and Einstein's dreams suggest that, that we should pay attention to the moment. And um, since writing that book, I have become more and more acutely aware of, of the fact that our, our world is moving too fast for its own good. A civilization is moving too fast, mainly fueled by our, our high-speed communication devices. But we just rush around far too much, um, chopping time into smaller and smaller units of efficiency. And we, talking on our cell phones when we're walking through the, the park and so on, that we are just not being present in the moment. And I think that that that's what I honor and value the most, is just being present in the moment. And I think that some of the, 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 the dream worlds and Einstein's dreams hint or suggest that in one way or another. I think that I am wiser now when I, than when I wrote that book. Um, I think that I've experienced more of the world and I am more troubled by the frantic pace of life. I love that answer. And in essence, you know, we're trying to escape the rush and time-driven life and discover how sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing at all. So how do you create the necessary space in your life to contemplate such deep matters and to give room for creativity? Obviously, I'm referring to your book, In Praise of Wasting Time. I try to minimize my use of email. I try, I don't take my cell phone with me uh, most of the time. The only time I carry my cell phone with me is when I'm traveling. Um, and my wife wants to be able to get in touch with me quickly. Uh, I I don't carry it with me on a day-to-day -day basis. I keep it turned off and in a drawer. Um, uh, I try to take walks every day or to have periods of time every day uh, where I'm doing nothing. And of course, we all have different jobs, different lifestyles, and not everybody can can do the same thing in attempting to unplug. But I think it's very, very important to take at least a few minutes a day and unplug from the grid. I like that you mentioned going for a walk. It, it seems that Every, all the great thinkers walked. And for me, I get the same benefits as sitting down and closing my eyes and meditating as I do from walking meditation. Yeah. And walking also provides you with the the beauty of nature. So it's it does. plus. And when you, when you go for that walk, you need to leave your cell phone at home. Don't, don't take your cell phone with you. Especially if you're trying to unlock some creative potential. By leaving your yeah. phone at home, you, these ideas just start to come to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree so cool. So just a few rapid questions for you before we wrap up here. What's the what's the last book that you read that you truly enjoyed? Well, I, I would say uh, Pachinko was a novel that I read uh, recently about the Korean-Japanese relationship, which is very, very good. Um, I do... I'm I'm trying to think now um, what's on my bedside table. Uh, I I read uh, an old book uh, by Martin Buber, I Thou, uh, which uh, I truly enjoyed. Is is of course very philosophical. Um, 
uh, I'll, I'll, my, my mind is going blank. I'm sorry I can't come up with with with. Uh, I'm reading books all the time, but I I can't come up with one for some, for some reason right now. Yeah, well, thank you for that. You've said you don't automatically start on a new book as soon as you finish the previous one. That you'd rather let good ideas simmer and stew for a long period of time. Can you give me an example of a good idea that you wanted to spend some time with? Well, I'm 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 writing uh, a new collection of essays right now, and and one of the essays that I've written is about uh, an idea that I have called um, cosmic biodiversity, and and that is it 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 looks at the the rarity of life. Uh, the, 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 the fraction of matter in, in our universe is in living form is, is a tiny, tiny fraction. It's like a couple of grains of sand on the Gobi Desert. And the, 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 the fraction of, of our universe in which life can arise before it passes away is also a small fraction because uh, 100 billion years or so... Uh, from now, all life in the universe and our universe will will be finished, and so life is rare both in space and time. And I think that that, for me, what that make makes it life it makes life more precious, and it it makes me feel a connection to all other living beings in the universe. And there's undoubtedly other living beings in the universe. Um, that even though I will never meet those other living beings, never talk to them, never know them, that we have this connection that we are both in this very, very rare fraction of material that is alive. Uh, so I call that cosmic biodiversity. The biodiversity is a concept that's been around for, for 50 years or so, and it just says that all uh, living things on Earth are connected. And so I've taken that one step further to to talk to think about the connection of, of, of all living things in the entire cosmos. Yeah, that reminds me of the idea of cosmopolitanism. We are all citizens of the cosmos. I hope I get a chance to read that essay. Is there a scientific breakthrough that you hope to still be around to see, but assume you will already have been long gone before it's made? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I, I think that that uh, we're going to know a lot more about brain science in the future than we do now. We know a lot, but there's a lot we don't know. And I think that eventually we will understand how memory works and uh, we will know uh, how we will be able to to uh, basically you'll be able to order up memories of anything uh, that you didn't of about events that you didn't actually have. Um, I think that we'll eventually have our our, our brains connected to the internet directly. Um, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing, um, but I think in in biology. Uh, that brain science is going to make enormous strides. Um, I think in physics that we will eventually have a theory of quantum gravity, which will allow us to understand how our our universe came into being. Uh, so those are some things that probably will not happen in my lifetime, but uh, will be very interesting. Very interesting indeed. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? If I could have a drink with anybody in history, I think it would probably be someone like Leonardo da Vinci. I shouldn't say someone like because he was unique, because it seems to me that that he was the last person who could master all of the knowledge of his civilization. Uh, uh I mean, running a close second would be Socrates, and I would love to have a conversation with him. Uh, I just think he was very, very wise, and I would love to see how his mind works in a conversation. I mean, we know a little bit about how his mind worked in, in the writings of, of Aristotle and Plato, 
Um, but I would love to, to, to have a conversation with him. So I'm, I'm sorry that I can't spend longer with you, Nick. No problem. We'll have to have a round two sometimes. So where should people go to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? I have a website at MIT, and I also have a website, uh, a Wikipedia website. And if you just Googled me, I think those would be among the first websites to come up. All right. Alan, thank you so much for doing this. Till next time. Thank you, Nick. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving me a review, following me on social media at Prime Philosophy, and just by spreading the word. Jacoba.